we have uh, we've shown that video a couple times during this series, and it stresses me out. <laughs> does it stress anybody else out? I mean, does it just like make you crazy? How chaotic it is. I mean, when you when when you're doing life, when you're thinking about those things, when you're actually doing those things, it might not seem as crazy. Like you know, you're just you know getting the kids up and sending them to school, or you're you know you're going to work, or you're returning emails, or you're walking the dog, or whatever it is that you do. Right? I mean, we do all those things. But man, when you read them and you hear the sounds of them, the noise and the chaos of that is completely overwhelming. I mean, because it is chaotic. And and thankfully, we don't have to do all of those things all at the same time, like all in the same moment. But we do most all of those things in a given day or especially within a given week. And so when we do those things, man... I mean, it, it, it sometimes just catches up to us. Have you ever, you ever kind of just been floating through life, doing fine, like you've got a pretty good rhythm, you seem like it, but you're doing all those things and they're, you know, they're kind of the noise, it, it keeps building in your head and the busyness and the stress and your calendar keeps filling up and even things that aren't on your calendar keep happening and creeping in and I mean, you know, like you were expecting it to be a really easy light day and you showed up to work and there's that one email with the three exclamation points over to the side and it's like, this is, is going to be a crazy day now. Or you got up and you thought this was the greatest day ever, like you had something to celebrate, you got up early. And you, you ate a, like a healthy breakfast. You didn't eat a Pop-Tart in the car. You like actually sat down and you ate a healthy breakfast. And you're thinking, this is going to be an awesome day. And you walk out to the car and you put your keys in the car. won't crank. You're like, okay, today's horrible now. And you haven't even started, right? Or maybe you're just kind of floating. There's been a lot of good days, a lot of bad days, somewhere in between. And you're just floating through life. And then all of a sudden, it just catches up to you. You just get so stressed out one day, not because it's the worst day of of all the days you've lived. It's just because today's the day you just decided to freak out. Or today's the day that all the emotions that you've been bottling up just finally decided to surface. I've shared on a number of different occasions about the sickness uh, that my mom had with colon cancer. She got colon cancer in 09 and she was sick for about two years and she passed away in 2011 and during her sickness, I mean, it was totally unexpected. During her illness, I mean, we, we kind of just kept doing life. She, she was getting treatment, and she was, she was going to Cancer Treatment Center of America in Zion, Illinois, right outside of Chicago. And we were so pleased with their care for her and the results that we were seeing. We would see really good reports after really bad reports. And um, so we stayed involved in that. And my dad, you know, he, he had this, this person that he loved and had loved for more than almost three and a half decades. And and so he needed a sounding board. He needed an outlet to just express his fears and his concerns. And so I would get on the phone with him and I would just allow him just to just vent. And my mom, she's walking this road, but, you know, she didn't want to unload on my dad everything. And so she would get on the phone and she would talk about her fears and concerns and I would listen. And my brother, who is a pastor up in Kentucky, he, he's not real big into the emotions of things, but every now and then you'd hear kind of the emotions come out of him and, and I would listen. And I had some what I thought were pretty good, you know, I felt like pressure relief valves. You know, I would talk to Corey. She would ask great insightful questions to allow me to flesh out what I was feeling and what I was thinking. And over those two years or so, she, you know, she and I had a lot of conversations and mom would get better and then mom would get worse and then mom would get better and mom would get worse. And we went to Christmas in 2010 and little did we know it would be the last Christmas with mom. And she was doing pretty good. Um, We had a pretty good holiday season and 
we went back home and the first week of January, she went into the hospital and she really never came out. Like even though she went home for a little while, then she'd go right back to the hospital and then she'd go home and then she'd go right back. And she had been in the hospital for several weeks when Corey and I were on the phone with my dad. And he said, listen, you probably just need to come up here. And so that was a difficult task. Obviously, we wanted to prioritize family, but choosing to do that meant kind of juggling our schedule and figuring out what to do with our kids and how to get up there. And so Corey and I flew up to where they were living in Akron, Ohio, um, the day before, or I guess the, the day before Valentine's Day in 2011. And we, we pretty much from that point on spent the next three weeks there in Ohio with my mom. Those were the last three weeks of her life. And we spent about the first week and a half to two weeks of that in the hospital there. And she had asked my dad not to allow her to pass away in a hospital. And so he took her home once the doctor said that they didn't feel like there was anything they could do. And so we walked through this journey with, with my dad and with my mom and with my family. My extended family was there. Her mom and her brothers and sisters and some of their family and some of my dad's family. And they were all there in my dad's house. It was chaos. And... She did pass away on Wednesday morning, March the 2nd, 2011. We jumped into the planning process for her funeral. And because of the work that they were doing, we did two funerals. We did a funeral there in Ohio where they lived and where they worked. But that's not really where they had been for most of their ministry and most of the time. And so uh, we did a second funeral just two days later down in Tennessee, which allowed for the family and friends and ministry folks that they had done ministry and life with for, again, about three decades to come and be a part of that. And so we did a funeral in Ohio. We did a funeral in Tennessee. And as a part of my mom's wishes, my dad and my brother and I did the funeral. We kind of preached the funeral. And so her passing really just was another turning of the page into the preparation of the celebration of her life. And at the end of the second funeral, we went to the graveside and we buried her and we had a service there. And I got into my car with my wife and my children and we drove from Tennessee back home and we jumped back into life. We put our life on hold for about three weeks and we just jumped into life and, you know, things were okay. We, were, we jumped right back into the baseball season that my son had missed some games and practices and the other coaches and parents had really kind of rallied there. And so we jumped back into that and we played baseball and the kids finished up school and I jumped back into work and some projects. And, and I tried my best just to kind of immerse myself in catching back up from what I had pushed aside for all these weeks and months. And I thought I was doing fine. Corey and I were still talking. We were still having great conversations. She would still ask me, how are you feeling? What are you thinking? How, you, know, how, you know, whatever. Good, really insightful questions. And I felt, again, that I'm responding in open, vulnerable, transparent ways. And I'm opening myself up. And I'm being vulnerable. And I'm being transparent. And then something happened about four or five months later. Corey cooked dinner one night. We were going to eat in the living room on TV trays. Don't judge us. And watch television with our kids. And Corey brought the food into the living room and sat the food down on the TV tray that I was going to be eating at. And I'm walking into the room and I realized that I needed a fork. And so I went into the kitchen to get a fork. And as I walked into the kitchen, I felt like the inside of my body was having an earthquake. And from the top of my head to the soles of my feet, I started to get numb. I picked up a fork and I told Corey, I said, something doesn't feel right. I thought I was having a heart attack. I took that fork and I walked back over to the TV tray and I sat it down and I sat down on the couch in front of that TV tray ready to eat and I could not function. I was completely numb except for this incredible shaking sensation on the inside of me. 
where he got on the phone and called my aunt, who's a nurse, and said, I don't know if he's having a heart attack or what's happening, but something is not right. And I laid my head over on the pillow that was there on that couch, and I started crying. And I cried for an hour. For the first time in probably two and a half years, all of the emotions and all of the chaos that was inside of me for what we were walking through began to come out of me. And some of the tears were violent, shaking, screaming out tears, and others were just quiet sobs of sadness. It was chaos inside of me that I had bottled up and pushed down and suppressed to the point that my body said, now we got to get some of this out. It was an emotional day. It, it was, a, it was a, a day that I remember so incredibly vividly because it was, it was one of those days you just don't forget. I'm not the only guy that's ever had a day like that. Some of you have probably had days like that. Maybe you didn't get numb. Maybe your insides didn't shake. Maybe you didn't cry. Maybe it wasn't because of the death of someone that you know, but you were stressed out to the max and you thought you were handling it. People were angry with you and you thought you were dealing with that. You were sad and you thought you knew how to handle that. And then one day it just all comes bubbling out. There's a guy in scripture who walked a very similar road to that. It's found in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 30. His name is King David. This was before he was king though. And in 1 Samuel chapter 30, David is on the run. There's a guy, King Saul, who wants to kill him. David's not really done anything wrong. David, from all accounts up to this point, has just done what he was supposed to do. He's just served God. He's been faithful, watching his father's sheep and tending them. And then he goes and he kills a giant when he should be now the savior of his people and those that celebrate him and sing songs about him, which they did. But Saul got angry and the anointing of favor of God came off of Saul and was going to begin to reside and rest on David. And David's on the run because Saul wants to have him killed. And we pick up this story where David has been fighting with the enemies of his own people. He's actually been fighting in the Philistine army. Philistines were the people of Goliath. And Goliath the giant, he's now dead. And so David, after a while, has joined back up with the Philistine army because he's on the run and he's got this band of men with him who are good fighting men. And so they just jump into fighting against the other enemies of the Philistines. But the people get a little nervous, those Philistine kind of higher ups in the army. They get a little nervous about David. And they, they said about him in 1 Samuel 29 and 5, they said, isn't this the David that they sang about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And so they realized this is a guy who we don't want to mess with. He's killed tens of thousands. And if he chooses to, he could probably kill us because we're his enemy. It doesn't matter that he's fighting beside us. We're his enemy. And so they send David and his band of men away and they're going to go back to their home base, this base that they have while they're on the run. And we pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 30, beginning in verse 1. They come to a place called Ziklag and this is what it says. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and the Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it and had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both young and old. They killed none of them but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and their sons and their daughters taken captives. Now the enemies of the people of God, of the children of Israel, of David and his band of warriors here, the enemies, the Amalekites, had come in 
while David and his men were away. All the men had gone off to fight. And all that was left there in that little village were the women, the children, and the, the livestock and the, 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 the things that they had, their riches. And so the Amalekites had come in and taken advantage of them while they were gone by taking all the women and children away with them as their captives and taking all the spoils that were there in the town. And so these band of men, as they've been turned away now by the Philistines, they come back to Ziklag. They walk back into town. And I can only imagine the emotion that they had. They're done fighting. They're going to have some time off. Little R&R here. And they come back walking into Ziklag. I can imagine they got their chest kind of puffed out. I can imagine that they're tired. They're ready to eat a good meal. They're going to be back in their beds, sleeping in their homes. They're going to see their wives. They're going to play with their kids. I don't know if they threw ball back then, but if I was walking back, we're going to throw something, a rock or something. You know, probably not a rock. That would hurt them. But we're going to do something, and we're going to walk back in, and it's over. We're done fighting for a while. And they walk in, and all the houses are on fire. They go open the door to their house if it's still standing, and they realize there's no one there. And in the field next to their house where they expect to see the horses and the cows and the livestock that is theirs, there's, there's nothing there. They run in and they look under their bed into that place where they've saved their life's savings and it's gone. And these men are incredibly, incredibly hurt, incredibly emotional, incredibly bitter. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to react. They don't know how to respond. They are not sure what to do. And these tough, ferocious fighting men start crying. And the Bible tells us that they cry until they could weep no more. One translation says that they cry until they have no strength left. You ever been there? These tough guys walk into town expecting this to be a reunion. And instead... It's desolate. There's no one there. The people that they expected to be there to celebrate them are gone. And so as these men begin crying until they can weep no more, they come to a place where they need to turn their frustration towards somebody. They're mad, but they don't know who to be mad to and toward. You ever been there? You're just mad and you don't know who to be mad at. And so they start looking around and somebody probably said, because I've met this kind of person, they probably said, you know what? This is all David's fault. He took us to fight with the Philistines. We had no business fighting with the Philistines. Those are our enemies. But we joined up with their army and they took us off. If we had been here, we would have protected our families. And somebody hears that and because they're angry and they're hurt and they're bitter, they say, yeah, it is David's fault. Yeah, you're right. It is David's fault. And I'm mad at David too. And I lost everything that I had saved I lost my wife, I lost my kids, I lost everything that I had. And that bitterness and anger and resentment and hurt and pain all kind of mixes up into one and they decide that they are going to stone David and kill him. And David gets wind of it. And now David, not only is he alone because his wife and his kids and all of his riches, they're all gone. Not only does he feel alone because he's already on the run and somebody's already trying to kill him. Now even his own men want to kill him. And then there's this incredible verse of scripture that maybe you've read and maybe you haven't. And it's found in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6. And it says this, but David encouraged himself in the Lord as God. That's the King James Version. The NIV says David found strength in the Lord as God. He encouraged himself in the Lord. He found strength 
in the Lord. If you take this all the way back to the original Hebrew language, you get this idea that he kind of rallied up strength. He worked up strength. He had to work at it. He didn't feel it. He didn't feel like it. But he just knew, I got to I gotta kind of pick myself up. And I got to move forward. He encouraged himself in the Lord. And, and I thought about this in my own life. I, I have been encouraged by the Lord. I have been encouraged by other people. But the first time that I read this, and probably dozens of other times after this, I started to ask myself, have I ever encouraged myself in the Lord? Have I ever strengthened myself in the Lord? And if I have, what does that even look like? How do I even do that? What does encouraging myself in the Lord look like? I think it can look like a lot of things. I think there's some really, I'll call them churchy answers because I'm a church kid and I've heard answers like this all of my life, but it doesn't mean they're not true. I think it can look like reading your Bible. I think it can look like praying. I think it can look like fasting. I think it can look like prayer and then meditation and journaling and all these different aspects of spiritual disciplines where I just turn my attention and focus towards God. I think it can look a lot like worship. Because I, I think all of the things that maybe we, we think are churchy answers, the reason that we've heard them so much is because they're true. If God really sticks closer to us than a, than a brother, if he knows the number of hairs or ever-decreasing number of hairs on our head, if he desires to know us intimately, in this very personal, real, tangible way, then the things that you're facing are not a surprise to him. The things that you're struggling with, you, you can't hide those things from him. He actually wants you to verbalize the things that are going on in your heart because when you try to hide those things from him, I, I, I almost think it's like Adam and Eve. They sinned, they ate of the fruit, and God shows back up because he had kind of this daily walk with them in the garden. Right? You remember this in Genesis? And because they realize now that they've sinned, they're naked, they go and hide in the trees behind a bush. Okay. Let's keep this in mind. God created the world. He has a pretty good view of the world and all the things in it. He has walked with them in the cool of the day. And they go and they think, this is a pretty wide tree. I think we can both stand behind this and he won't see us. What a futile effort. What a waste of time. And he comes and he pursues them. Where'd you go? And Adam says, hey, we, we, we ate of the fruit, we sinned, we were naked, and we hid. And it's interesting what God's response to them was. He, he did not respond by saying, no, that's not true. He didn't respond and say, oh, don't be crazy. He responded to say, who told you that? Who's influencing you other than me? Who's speaking into your life and telling you things that I didn't tell you? Who's trying to put a condition on you that I didn't put on you? You were naked when we walked in the garden before. Why is that a big deal now? Who are you listening to? Who's influencing you? He just said, who, who told you that? They hid. 
And you and I, we sometimes hide. We, we think because we don't want to tell all of the humans around us all of our stuff that we can't tell God. And so encouraging ourselves in the Lord is this idea that I am going to open up who I am and let God see. I've referenced it before. I got this from a very, very wise man who I love so much. But this word intimacy, I've used it two or three times today. I talk about God wanting intimacy with us, right? It's self-defining. The culture has taken it to mean something really weird related to sex and, and all of that. But really intimacy is self-defining and it just means in, to, me, see. It's just as I'm vulnerable to you. I, I'm open to you. I'm transparent to you. The good, the bad, and the ugly, here's who I am. And God desires that because God has it anyway. It's just a matter of do I choose to allow myself to be that vulnerable? Do I allow myself to be that transparent with God? Do I allow myself with any other human being on the earth to open up and say, here's who I am, good, bad, and ugly. Here's what I struggle with. Here's what I'm afraid of. Here's what I'm feeling. I can't even articulate it well, but here's what's going on in me. And I just want somebody else to know so I know I'm not crazy. I just want somebody to know. And even if you can't find that person, or maybe there's not enough of those people, you just open up your mouth and say to God, God, maybe you know this already because he does. Here's what's going on in me. Here's what I'm afraid of. Here's what I'm scared of. Here's what I don't know about tomorrow that I want to know. Here's the things about my past that I don't love. Here's the shame and the guilt and the condemnation that I carry. Can you please help me process this? My life is chaotic. Whether it's related to stress or busyness or whether it's related to loss or hurt or pain or shame or the past or the future or the present. I just need you, God, to help me figure it out. When I think about prayer, I'm often taken back to the Old Testament. The prayers of the Old Testament are something really, really cool. If you ever read many of the prayers of the Old Testament, a lot of them start with this kind of preface to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And maybe you know what that means. But when I read it, I was like, why do they even waste time saying that? That makes no sense. Like if I got up every Sunday and started praying to the God of YZ. That's my grandfather. His actual name is YZ. Just two letters. Don't make fun. To the God of YZ and to the God of Bill, to the God of Jeremy. Like after a while, you're gonna be like, we ain't going to this church anymore. He's crazy, right? Like, why would I waste your time? If I just started calling out names that you didn't know, or maybe names that you had heard of to the God of Billy Graham, and to the God of whoever, and to the God, you'd be like, what is he doing? But there's this interesting thing. If you actually know those stories, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham was a guy that God called to follow and obey him into a land that he didn't even know. Abraham was a guy that God promised to make him a great nation even when he couldn't conceive children. Isaac was a guy who God brought about reconciliation, right? He, 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 he's the promised child and there's birth that comes out of that. Jacob's this guy that God brings back together with his brother Esau. I mean, there's incredible things. And I think that those prayers started that way so that the people that were about to petition God with their needs could be reminded that they're praying to a God who can answer prayer. That they're praying to the God of Abraham who calls us sometimes out of our comfort into a place that we don't know. And yet he goes with us to that place. We're praying to the God of Isaac, who is a promise of God because God gives and keeps his promises. 
that we're praying to the God of Jacob, that even when things seem broken and dead, that God brings them back to life and reconciles them back to wholeness. And so I think that these prayers started this way for two really quick reasons. And these are going to sound so preachy today. But the first of these is that they help me to position God in his rightful place of provision. That he's the God that provides for me. That before I ever present my needs, I start prayer by positioning God in the correct place of who and where he needs to be. God, you provide. God, you are the God that has given and the God that does good and the God that loves. And so you are in your rightful place of provision. And the second thing it does is to build my faith because before I ever ask God for anything, I'm reminded that God can do it. I position God where he rightfully deserves to be and I position me as trusting in him and my faith is grown. My faith is built because of who he is. And so let me just say to you that when I pray, whether I acknowledge it verbally or not, I know that I'm praying to the God of Henry Ernest Isaacs, a church planter, who went all through the Midwest and into the East Coast and planted churches, walking into towns that had no desire to see a church be planted. And he just faithfully did what God called him to do. And I'm praying to the God of YZ Isaacs, my grandfather. He's about this tall. He's got three brothers. There's four of them. His name is YZ because they thought he was going to be last. But his brother's names are OB, RJ, and LD. No kidding. Okay? I'm praying to him. He was a pastor for about 40 years. He's retired now. One Sunday they showed up to church and a man died. They laid him down on a couch and they prayed For God to bring him back to life. And he did. I'm praying to the God of Bill and Kathy Isaacs. My parents. Who just trusted God all of my life. Even till today. To be who he said. That he was. I'm praying to the God of Paul Francis Lanier. My grandfather on my mom's side. Who again another pastor. Loved God. Trusted God. Put his kids into ministry. At a really young age. And I benefit from that because my mom and her siblings were in ministry and they were modeled for and then modeled to us what it meant to follow God and pursue him. I'm standing here today praying to the God of Kathy Isaacs, my mom, who just loved God and didn't do anything in her pursuit of God to make me think that it was a futile effort or worthless of my time to pursue him too who walked that two-year journey with cancer with such incredible faith, not as a superhero. She was afraid. She was scared. She was upset. She was mad. But in this way that says, no matter how this plays out, I just trust God, who's always been good to me. That's who I pray to. You know, Corey was up here last week and we were celebrating mothers and did such a great job talking about motherhood and the seasons of life. And she told a story about her mom Her mom was single almost all of Corey's life, raising three girls. And if you're a single parent, you know that sometimes the money runs out before the month does. If you're not a single parent, maybe you're living that too. And there were countless times where Corey talks about remembering seeing or hearing her mother in the little laundry room of their two-bedroom duplex, knelt down on top of the dirty clothes or the clean clothes that still hadn't been folded yet, and just praying and asking God to show up. And that sometimes the doorbell would ring and they would go to the door and there would be groceries on the front porch and nobody was standing there 
She told the story last week of walking out of, her, out of her church and not being able to see through her car because there were bags of groceries there because they couldn't afford food and someone had given that to them. And you, do you not think that when we pray and we say, God, our money's tight right now. We've got bills coming and there's things happening and we got all this stuff that we're accountable to. You don't think when we pray that Corey is praying to the God that showed up for Cindy, her mother? You don't think when I'm praying and believing, I'm praying built on, standing on the shoulders of the prayers that have been prayed before me. I think that's why the Old Testament folks prayed to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so that they could be reminded that God is a God who answers prayers. And so that their faith could be built up. It's the other reason that in the Old Testament, you just see them randomly stop and just put a stack of rocks there and name it. It's an altar. It's a place where when you're passing by later, you can say to your kids, this is whatever the name is, the place where God provided, the place where God showed up, the place where God met our needs. And I think for you and I, we don't build enough altars. We don't build enough altars. We don't pause and reflect and celebrate and tell stories about the goodness of God. We don't build things into the lives of our children and our grandchildren to say, this is the God that you pray to. This is the God who answers prayers. I don't think we build enough altars. But interestingly, David just encouraged himself in the Lord. We're given no other information about what that process looked like for him. He found strength in the Lord his God. And then he inquires of God in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 8. And David inquired of the Lord... Shall I pursue this raiding party? Talking about the Amalekites. Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. God answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. I love that part. God didn't just say, you're going to overtake them. He said, and succeed in the rescue. You're going to succeed in getting back all that has been taken from you. I love that God answers prayers. In David's point of need, he asks God, what do you want me to do now? You ever prayed a prayer like that? God, I'm at the end of my rope. What do you want me to do? I believe God answers prayers like that. I believe God will help us, strengthen us. There's this incredible ending to this story that we're not going to read today, but David sets out with 600 men, 200 are too tired, and they stay sitting beside the river. And David and 400 men go and chase down the Amalekites. And they find them in a valley with the help of this little boy slash young adult that they had left behind. They go into the valley and they fight them from dusk one day until the next day. And they wipe them out. So much so that we don't hear about the Amalekite army for a long time. Because David and that that band of 400 men, they just wiped them out. And they got back everything that had been taken from them. Every single coin, every piece of livestock, every family member, they got back and they took them back and rebuilt their lives in Ziklag. Do you think 
that the next time David needed strength, he remembered a God that answered his prayer. You think the next time David was in trouble, the next time David wasn't sure where to turn, he was reminded that God answers prayer. So today, I don't know where you're at. I don't know what's going on in your life. I'm not sure what things you're facing. Today's not intended to be really heavy, though I feel like maybe now it is. Life could be awesome. Life could be terrible. Or life could be somewhere in between. But whether you've already been there, you're there now, or you know that one day it's coming, I want to just give us two quick things to know how to encourage ourselves in the Lord. Two really quick points that says, you know, if I ever get to the place where people want to stone me, people want to say it's my fault, where I don't know how to deal with the things going on in my life, where I'm emotionally hurt, I'm emotionally spent, I'm tired, I'm frustrated, I'm mad, I'm sad, whatever the emotion is, and I just need to encourage myself in the Lord. There's no one else standing around. There's nobody else speaking into my life, or maybe they are, and it's just not taken. How do I encourage myself in the Lord? The very first thing is you got to zoom out. Zoom out. This is a pet phrase of mine. I say it all the time. You've heard me say it probably, but you got to zoom out. Zooming out just says, I'm going to get off the ground level and I'm going to get up to the 50,000 foot level as quickly as possible, mentally. I'm going to try as much as possible, not to stick my head in the sand and act like I'm not going through anything, but to just change my perspective about what's happening. Because have you ever flown in an airplane? You ever been up high? You ever been in a hot air balloon? You ever been in a really tall building? You look down and the things on the ground look different than when you're standing on the ground in the middle of them, right? You ever been in New York City and you're on the ground walking and there's just a thousand million kajillion people. But you go to the top of one of those buildings and you look down and you just see these little moving things. But there's lots of space in between them. There's a lot of room and there's just a lot of commotion, but it's kind of peaceful up there. There's just wind blowing and you just kind of look out and you see the river and you see other land masses, and it's not as stressful as when you're bumping elbows trying to get by everybody. Zoom out. Change your perspective. As much as you possibly can, detach the emotions that are so prevalent in the decision-making process on the ground. While you're in the midst of it, you're standing right in the middle of what's going on. The emotions that you're feeling, the emotions that you're facing, you can't help that. But man, those, those emotions really help to... Speak into the decision-making process as much as possible. Try to zoom out a little bit. Push the emotions aside just for a brief moment and see if you can make a very rational decision. And here's how I kind of process that. I would say in my head, if someone that I loved was going through this, what would I say to them? If somebody that I loved and I knew was walking through the same situation that I'm walking through right now, what would I say to them? How would I say that they should respond? What decisions should they make? They should probably not quit their job today because they're too emotional to do that. So I don't need to quit my job today. They they should probably not call that person or send that email because they're going to regret it. So I probably shouldn't make that phone call or send that email. They, They should probably not respond this way or that way. They should probably pause. They should probably go to bed and sleep. They should probably not buy that. They should probably not do that. So I don't need to do that i got to zoom out. I've got to change my perspective about what's going on in my life. And the second thing i got to do is i got to focus in. i got to zoom out and focus in. Not on the circumstance, on God. I've got to zoom out of what I'm facing and focus my attention on God. And say, God, 
it's still going to be there when we get done talking. But I just need to be reminded what you've done for me before. I need to be reminded of the stories that I've heard people tell about how you showed up in their situation that's very similar to mine. If I've never heard a story, I need you to bring somebody along my path that can tell me that story. I need one of those really cool supernatural things to happen where I open the Bible and it goes right to the verse I need to read. That never happens to me. I need God to be like, peace be still, and I open it up to the grain offering is, it has no bearing on my situation. But I pray God does that for you. God, I need you just to change my thinking. I'm going to zoom out a little bit. And I'm going to focus on you. And I need in the next few minutes you just to speak some things into me that just encourage me. I want to encourage myself in the Lord by focusing on the Lord. You know, I referenced my mom's passing earlier. And I hope when I do that, you don't misunderstand my motives or my intentions. I'm really self-conscious about stuff like that. And man, it was just, it's, it's the most real example I have of walking through stuff like this. I told you that at the funeral, just to honor my mom and to kind of honor her wishes, my dad, my brother, and I preached her funeral. We did it twice. I don't recommend that. But my dad closed both of those funeral services He was the last speaker. And in the week leading up, a couple days leading up, he said to me and my brother, he said, I I know this is going to sound weird, but he says, as I'm I'm closing my part, I want to sing. I want to worship. Now, to you, that may sound like the craziest thing in the world. To me, it sounded a little crazy, too, except that that's, that's who he is. That's who he was the whole two years he was walking that journey with her. It's who he was long before that process. And so he decided that that's how he wanted to conclude the service. And I just want to show you a little snippet of his final thoughts and how he chose to conclude my mom's funeral. Tomorrow morning, the sun is going to come up. And all of us are going to be busy about our lives doing that which the Lord has asked us to do. And I want all of you to know that our family will bury our Kathy and we are going to go on serving the Lord. We're not going to give up on our faith. We're not going to surrender our confidence in God or his ability to care for us or provide for us. God has never done us wrong. He's never been bad to us. He's always been good. We have no sob story to say, even though we may not understand the things that we have gone through. Nonetheless, we still believe and we choose to trust in the Lord. We ask you to stand with us, if you would please, for this concluding song and sing this chorus with us as we leave the house tonight. You deserve the glory and the
We were singing that after praying for two years that God would do a miracle and heal my mom. It didn't turn out the way we wanted. We were singing about the greatness of God that we were pleading for to show up in that circumstance. And I don't show you that so that you think my dad's the most amazing man in the world, which he kind of is. Or to make you think that in that journey, we weren't upset and frustrated and searching and asking God why and wondering and seeking. But I just want to show you that in the midst of your pain, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the uncertainty, you can declare some things about God that you don't even know if they're true. You don't even know if he's great. You don't know where he's at. You, you, you don't even know if he does miracles because he didn't do it for you this time. Because guess what? He is. And if my faith changed as a response to the journey that I'd walked through with my mom, and if I stood on that stage and declared to you that I didn't believe in God anymore, then what I would be saying to you is that my faith in God was circumstantial. That it was only as good as the good circumstances of life. And when circumstances got bad or I didn't like them, I'm out. You want to encourage yourself in the Lord? Stand in the midst of uncertainty and sing about his greatness. I found this this week. It was just really cool to me. Sean put this on Facebook. I didn't even tell him I was going to do this. No doubt this will be a song we all sing in a couple months. It says, cancer has a name. Poverty has a name. Depression has a name. Death has a name. And they all must bow to the name above every name. Jesus. As you walk through your circumstances and you find yourself looking at some stuff that you don't want to be facing, I encourage you to worship to zoom out and to focus your attention on God. And so here's just some thoughts and we're going to sing today. If life has gotten you down with bad circumstances, the best response might be worship. To say, in spite of my present circumstances and in anticipation of tomorrow, I will encourage myself in the Lord. If life is just busy and chaotic and stress-filled, the best response might be to pause and to worship. To say that I won't be allowed to be defined by what I've done or what I can do. But I want to encourage myself in the God who's already done it all. If life's good right now. If life is great and you have no, no thing in your life that's really chaotic and stressful and painful and hurtful. The best response might be to pause in reflection and worship. To thank God for what he's done and be reminded of who he is. Encouraging yourself in the Lord. I'm going to ask you to stand with me now. Everybody in the room. I'm going to ask our prayer team to come to the front. We're going to close this portion of our service just by worshiping together. It's a song many of us know. The words will be on the screen. And during this song, I encourage you that no matter what your circumstance is, to worship. For you, that just may be whispering those words for you it may be standing still with your head bowed but your heart is reaching out to god 
It may be lifting your hands. It may be stepping to the front to stand with these who are here to say, I just need somebody to pray with me. I need somebody to celebrate with me. I need somebody to walk this road with me for the next few minutes so that I can be reminded that when I leave this place, I'm not walking this road alone. We're just going to sing a simple song that says, trust you, Jesus. And here's what I encourage you to do. If you're not sure you can trust him, declare it first. Sing it first. If you're not sure you can trust him, you don't know how it's going to play out. You're not sure what tomorrow holds. There's uncertainty, there's fear, there's anxiety. I encourage you to lift your hands and to close your eyes and say, I trust you, Jesus, with my life. And allow your words to declare what you're unsure about in your heart. I want to pray over you and for you and for this time. God, I thank you so much for who you are. And I thank you that you're a God that keeps your promises. I thank you that you're a God that can be trusted. And now in the next few minutes, some of us are walking a really rough path. Some of us are hurt. Some of us are broken. Some of us are just stressed out. Some of us are uncertain and anxious about the future. Some of us are living a great life right now. And today is a great day. And we've had several great days. And there's nothing to be worried about. So God, in all of those circumstances, we pause now to worship you and to trust you, to be reminded of who you are and who you were and what you did, to be reminded of what you're doing now and to be thankful and hope-filled for what you're going to do. So God, we stand today and worship in Jesus' name.